brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, four videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And we've been at this long enough by now to know that the corporate media is not doing the job that media should do. In fact, they act more as a filter for making sure certain scandals take precedent over others, that they fuel the fires of the two-party rage, that stories like the Epstein saga don't get deep enough to expose the whole system, and maybe most importantly, that their sponsors and partners are properly shielded from any negative press. And it's getting so bad now that even people who have drank the corporate media Kool-Aid for years are seeing through the carefully crafted narratives and are looking anywhere they can to find some integrity, objectivity, and actual intelligence in their news. Well, folks, I hope today's show marks a digital signpost to point you to the work of our amazing guest, Whitney Webb. Not only has Whitney gotten some well-deserved recent attention for her incredibly detailed deep dive into the Epstein saga with her book-length four-part series, The Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail, but she's also written about a number of subjects few others are, including international election meddling, CIA coups, the weaponized algorithms of Silicon Valley, the finer points of the cozy relationship between the U.S. and Israel, and so much more. Whitney is currently working as a Mint Press News journalist based in Chile, but she has also contributed to several independent media outlets, including Global Research, EcoWatch, the Ron Paul Institute, and 21st Century Wire, among others. She's also made several radio and television appearances now as well, and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromising Integrity in Journalism, and that is no small thing. So let's get into it, boldly going where few others dare to tread, the criminal cabal caller-outer, the independent journalist extraordinaire, and a righteous thorn in the paw of the empire. Whitney the Web Exposer Web, welcome to the higher side. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Yes, well thanks for doing it. I know you're in high demand after your Epstein coverage. Really amazing work there, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But I am intrigued by some of the more global aspects of your work, and even your move to Chile. Obviously, a lot of us can get stuck in the American bubble and we lose sight of our global view. Even on a show like this, we might cover 
5G or geoengineering or MKUltra even, and we talk a lot about how the capstone cabal affects the American microcosm, but we don't get out of that lane as much as we should. So to kick this off, I'm curious to hear a bit about your experience moving out of the States and how you see the big empire affecting the region of the world where you now reside. <laughs> well, you know, I originally came to South America thinking I wanted to get away from stuff in the U.S. that I saw, you know, that's still going on today, but, you know, I saw coming anyway, like a, a long time ago when I left in, in 2012 after I graduated from college. And I kind of thought that here in the middle of nowhere <laughs> in, in in southern Chile, because I live, I live pretty far down south, uh, not that far from Antarctica, actually, <laughs> I thought I would, you know, be safe here, right? But the more I, I learned about, you know, South America specifically and some of the geopolitical things going on in, in Patagonia specifically, which is, you know, the region where I live, I came to realize that a lot of the stuff I was writing about was actually, you know, also uh, very much affecting where I was living. And I actually ended up starting a series earlier this year about some really crazy stuff going on in Patagonia with actually a lot of the billionaires um, and some billionaires that are connected to this so-called mega group that were backing Jeffrey Epstein and some other crazy stuff. And they're basically, um, you know, some of them, including this one British billionaire, this guy named Joe Lewis. I mean, he's essentially made like a parallel state in Patagonia. He has this property that borders this lake and all these locals, you know, have a, um, you know, a government right to go and visit that lake because it's a public lake. And he basically has private security guards almost drown people for getting close to it. And like, uh, does all this other really crazy stuff. And, and there's a lot more going on than that. There's actually a lot of, um, indications and concern in people in Argentina and also in Chile that there's um, these upcoming efforts uh, led by the IMF actually to basically try and partition Patagonia and make it a separate country, uh, basically sort of like a feeding ground of, you know, new raw materials for um, the global financial elite. So yeah, I'll be writing more on that <laughs> in a couple months um, and start up that series again when, when a lot of my Epstein stuff is concluded. But basically, that series really shows that really no matter where you go in the world, you're going to find this stuff. I mean, this is really a, um, these types of, I guess you could call it American empire, or you could call it just, I wouldn't just call it, you know, like a, the global power elite empire. They really have their tentacles everywhere, so to speak. So it's kind of hard to really live anywhere these days and not have some sort of interaction with it. But, you know, the nice part about Chile is that where I live anyway, it's it's nice and it's it's relaxed. So you, it's easy to forget about that stuff here still. It's not staring you in the face every day. Well, that is a silver lining, but you're right. I mean, South America is really ripe for resource plunder. Of course, I've heard a lot about Brazil's election last year. There was a lot of hacking and meddling. And now the Amazon is on fire. There's a lot of speculation as to hidden motives there. I mean, corporate interests would love to come in and take that land. So you can't put anything past them, really. Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely true. And, and as far as the Amazon goes, I mean, there's definitely been interests in, in Argentina and a lot of the uh, or sorry, in Brazil. And a lot of them are, are foreign and even from other countries in Latin America, oligarchs from from countries like Argentina, for example, that have had a longstanding interest in, in increasing uh, Brazil's meat industry. And because uh, cattle cattle ranching is one of the main drivers of uh, deforestation in the Amazon. But another thing that's really crazy that goes on that I have personal experience with actually um, has to do with mining in the Andes. And that's one of the main, uh, I guess, resource plundering efforts uh, underway near where I live. Uh, they're trying to dam up all the rivers in Chile to make these hydroelectric power plants. And they're claiming that it's for, you know, to the people to give renewable energy. But everywhere they've been installed, they don't connect to 
local communities and uh, they're trying they basically are the first phase of bringing mining to these areas where mining didn't exist before because the Andes are really rich in copper and a lot of other minerals. So basically they try and get these hydroelectric power plants installed and then, then they bring in the mines and these plants aren't for the people. Like they try and sell them as they're for the mines, but they sell, they have the, this really effective PR campaign of trying to be like, you know, it's sustainable energy, but it really, um, <laughs> it, it's really uh, something entirely different. What goes on in other places in South America are really nuts in relation to that too. Like I, uh, I used to live in Peru. I actually used to manage a farm in a really rural area of Peru, not that far from Cusco. So like way up in the Andes. And there was all these battles between locals and these, these big, really predatory mine companies that really, you know, are really destructive um, environmentally, but they also get along uh, quite poorly with the locals and, really ignore what local communities want. Probably like 10 kilometers from where I was living, a group of angry locals like burned down housing for this mine that was that was near where I lived. And then uh, the mine company responded basically by by sending in getting the Peruvian military sent in and the the so-called ringleaders, they they basically just pushed them off cliffs. (laughs) It was like really, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, thing that goes on, you know, you don't really hear about in mainstream media, whether it's in South America or, or in the U.S. or really anywhere else. But a lot of these mining companies are either, you know, British or American, Chinese um, or Australian, generally speaking. And they basically, you know, have the local governments at their beck and call and, and they do this sort of these sort of extrajudicial uh, killings. Um, another really crazy um, case that, that I've written about before but is, is, is really not well known is how this mine that originally used to be owned by ExxonMobil, I forget what company owns it now, but I think it's an American company still. They basically used a hydroelectric dam that they again sold as being sustainable energy to basically divert the only river that went to uh, the largest indigenous community of Colombia, the YU. And that was in 2011. And between 2011 and 2016, like 5,000 kids died because they didn't have any water in this community and their whole, they can't grow their own food. They, they barely have a liter of water to live, live off of. And all of the river was diverted to this mine and they use the water just to like clean the roads to improve visibility. They like water the roads all day while this uh, community, not that far from there is just, you know, they're literally dying of thirst in, in, in like record numbers. And it, it's just like totally insane. So yeah, South America is full of cases like that. But because, you know, like corporate media, whether it's in Latin America or it's in the United States or, or anywhere else, really, they don't really cover the stuff. So no one really knows and there's no pushback. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm really glad you laid out some of those cases. I mean, this confessions of an economic hitman type of stuff is very much par for the course. But I do like to make people aware of it because the folks that are affected here, they don't really have a voice. So it is important to remember them. I mean, we complain about the American empire from within it. And, you know, there's a lot to complain about, but it's a lot worse for other people outside of it. And I think they deserve some attention. And you wrote a really interesting piece about Venezuela before the Epstein coverage came about entitled How GMO Seeds and Monsanto slash Bayer's Roundup Are Driving U.S. Policy in Venezuela. And you say... It is telling that the top political donors in the U.S. most aggressively pushing regime change in Venezuela have close ties to Monsanto and major financial stakes in Bayer. Well, yeah, that's definitely telling. 
It seems like GMO crops and global food supply control is a big aspect of international politics now. But can you tell us a little bit more about that article and that situation? Yeah, well, in, in Venezuela specifically, this has to do, this goes back to, um, I think it was 2004 when Hugo Chavez, he, he and, um, the legislature at the time, they enacted this, uh, this really progressive seed law and this ban on GMO crops, um, in Venezuela. That's still in effect and it actually, has been very strongly opposed by uh, the party of Juan Guaido, who is, of course, like the interim president, his his party popular will in the roundtable of democratic unity, which is sort of like this umbrella group of U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition parties. They've basically made it their mission to try and repeal it, um, and they've tried numerous times and have been unsuccessful. But actually, um, around the time I wrote this article, Juan Guaido had released his, uh, his plan for Venezuela as interim president or like U.S. handpicked president. Um, and his plan was called Plan Pais or like country plan. And, um, one of the things he kept talking about repeatedly that didn't really get any media attention at the time was agriculture and basically opening up Venezuela and, and renovating agriculture and making it this big agricultural hub. Because even though Venezuela has a lot of fertile land and one would assume should have a booming agricultural sector, it's actually a very neglected agri- agricultural sector. But this is something that precedes Chavez by several decades. Um, this actually goes back to the 1940s when um, basically the oil industry in Venezuela took over and basically led to almost every other sector of Venezuela's economy being neglected in favor of the oil sector. And Chavez tried to reverse that a little bit, but he certainly did not go far enough. I mean, that's a crit- one of the several criticisms that one could make a, of Chavez from the left, even. But what we see here with Juan Guaido is that he was basically, you know, there there were some sort of buzzwords, you know, in his presentation of Plan Pais that suggested that there was going to be the repeal of the seed law in this GMO ban that had been in effect for a long time. And what's interesting, of course, is that one of the main backers of this Venezuelan regime change efforts in the United States is Marco Rubio. Um, and of course, the Trump administration and a major, major backer to Marco Rubio, and also a more recent backer of President Trump after he was elected is this guy named Paul Singer, who is this, um, he's often called a vulture capitalist. He's very well known in Latin America, including Argentina for his predatory um, activities, basically, you know, trying to buy up uh, debt on, on companies. He tried to basically crash Argentina's economy again when um, uh, Cristina Fernandez the, the Kirchner was president. And he um, recently, at a time when all other investors of, of Bayer Monsanto, because Bayer and Monsanto merged, uh, they were all trying to reduce their stock because um, I'm sure a lot of people know following the news that that Monsanto um, has been, or, or Bayer rather, has been in a lot of trouble over Monsanto's uh, flagship product, Roundup or glyphosate because there have been all of these um, trials in the U.S. Um, awarding large sums of money to people who have claimed and, and won settlements about um, glyphosate causing cancer. So, of course, for any other investor, this would not be the time to buy stock in Bayer. But Paul Singer has been buying considerable uh, stock in Bayer at a time when everyone else is fleeing, which is quite odd. But when you look at his history of being this quote-unquote vulture capitalist and his backing of, of a lot of the politicians um, very much involved in, in this effort of backing Juan Guaido and Juan Guaido, of course, talking about the need to repeal this ban and, you know, really beef up the agricultural sector in Venezuela if he succeeds in, in taking Venezuela's government um, may suggest why Paul Singer was so interested um, in uh, obtaining more stock in Bayer during this time. Because what we've seen in a, in a lot of other cases 
where, you know, there's been a regime change. For example, in Ukraine, uh, basically, uh, in, in two, 20, before 2014 in Ukraine, there was not a lot of GMO crops. And then after the, the coup, the IMF and the World Bank basically, um, a, as a stipulation in, um, in giving, uh, Ukraine's new government these loans basically forced <laughs> Ukraine to accept, uh, biotechnology. And, and GMO crops into its agricultural sector. So it would make sense to assume the same thing would happen in Venezuela. And it looks like that Paul Singer is already preparing to make a profit off of that, which would fit with his, his entire history as part of his, you know, um, activities in managing his hedge fund, uh, which I believe is called Elliott Capital Management. Mm. Man, you just know so much about this stuff. And I was trying to do some reading about updates with this fight for regime change. We have Guaido, that's the U.S.-backed leader, and then we have Chavez's successor, Maduro. And what I was reading was kind of confusing as to what's going on now. It almost seemed like just some kind of stalemate while the country just is halted. Is that what's going on? Is there an update? Has one side won over the other? I think it's more or less a stalemate. I mean, to me, it honestly looks like Maduro's holding on, but they're trying to really tighten the noose of, of, of sanctions even more. You know, I haven't really been following this particularly closely in the last month because I've been so focused on this Epstein stuff, right? But um, the strategy seems to be uh, to basically choke off their ability to sell their oil abroad and to prevent them from receiving or importing anything. And this is really crazy though, because um, a lot Venezuela has, for, for the reason I mentioned earlier that they, they never really diversified their economy, even before Chavez, um, they import the vast majority of their food and they import a lot of other things. And so of course, this is causing a lot of hardship in Venezuela. Um, in Latin America, there's a lot of uh, Venezuelan uh, people from Venezuela, basically trying to, uh, you know, immigrate to other countries, including Chile, where I live. Um, but some of the ones I've talked to, you know, there's some that really hate Maduro and there's some that, you know, don't really care either way or even like the guy. They just um, they don't want to suffer, you know, these collective punishment sanctions that that ultimately punish, you know, regular civilians and don't really do anything uh, to target Maduro specifically. Because what, what these sanctions do is basically the strategy behind them is to make life for civilians uh, in the targeted country so miserable that they rise up and overthrow the government just to just to end the economic uh you know, the economic siege is really, is really what it comes down to. Basically, I think the U.S. strategy is to try and tighten the noose as much as possible and wait it out. And then when the time comes, put Juan Guaido in if they manage in succeeding them. But there's um, so many people in Venezuela that do not uh, want the gringos, right, uh, to come and take over. And even if they don't like Maduro, some of them prefer him, at least a Venezuelan being in power to someone they see as a puppet of the United States being in power. And it's worth pointing out, too, that Juan Guaido's political party, which is called Popular Will, or uh, Voluntad Popular, um, it, it's really led, uh, even though Juan Guaido is like sort of the interim president, the, the real power behind Juan Guaido and his mentor is this guy named Leopoldo Lopez. And Leopoldo Lopez, during this failed coup attempt uh, earlier this year, where Guaido and Lopez claimed that they had taken a military base, even though they really didn't. Um, some people may remember that. Actually, during that time, Leopoldo Lopez told uh, a, report, a group of reporters that were present there um, for international outlets, including Bloomberg and some other ones, that the plan was once Guaido and popular will is in power in Venezuela to bring in the U.S. government as part of, of the government of Venezuela, which to a lot of people um, basically means make Venezuela a colony of the United States. So obviously people in Venezuela, anyone that cares about national sovereignty, whether they like Maduro or not, may prefer Maduro uh, to that option. Wow. Wow. 
And yes, I, I definitely think that this GMO politics thing is a big part of what the American empire is doing, working on behalf of these major billion-dollar multinational corporations like Monsanto and Bayer, and it obviously extends beyond Venezuela. Just one other detail you mentioned is that when Brazil sought to expand their biotechnology investment in 2012, Monsanto saw a 21% increase in its sales of GMO corn seed alone, generating an additional billion dollars in profits for the company. So this is no small thing. It's not super surprising why a guy like Paul Singer would be <laughs> investing in this while everyone's running for the hills, because he probably knows that they get their way, regardless of how much bad PR is out there. And I guess one other important topic I wanted to touch on before we get into your Epstein coverage is the piece you wrote called The Trust Project, Big Media and Silicon Valley's Weaponized Algorithms Silence Dissent. And you say, given the Trust Project's rich get richer impact on the online news landscape, it is not surprising to find that it is funded by a confluence of tech oligarchs and powerful forces with a clear stake in controlling the flow of news. What can you tell us about the Trust Project and who's behind us? What worries you about this? Okay, so the Trust Project, they describe themselves as sort of this um, a consortium of top news companies that have basically gotten together to fight against the the scourge that everyone knows about after 2016 known as fake news, right? So basically what um, the public face of this is like, you know, if you're a Trust Project partner, which you have to be approved by the Trust Project to become a partner, not anyone can partner up. You have to be chosen by them. You can put like the little T uh, symbol of the Trust Project on your webpage for people to see, which is all nice. And it, and it tells people about the commitments you've made to newsroom transparency you can also see, um, you know, in a table uh, that the Trust Project has set up called the Newsroom Transparency Tracker. But, you know, it, it's kind of absurd because even though they claim this is about promoting transparency, what what this uh, Newsroom Transparency stuff actually does is it, is it conflates actual transparency practices with simply providing the Trust Project, like, um, the official policies and guidelines about their, their indicators specifically. So, like, outlets like The Economist and uh, get, like, like a perfect score, um, even though the economy, well, I'll, I think a lot of your listeners will probably know, um, you know, who owns the economist and, and, and what that's about. So, uh, that, that's just kind of silly, but I don't really, I think that's just the public face of the trust project. As I point out in my piece, the real power of this, because the trust project, right, it was, it was co-founded, um, with the head of Google news or the vice president of Google for Google News, who's basically the head of Google News. Basically, what this does is that um, this is the private part of the trust project, which is obviously the most powerful and less transparent part of, of this uh, organization. And basically what it does is that if you're a trust project partner and you are approved by this consortium of top mainstream media news companies, you are allowed to embed this HTML code or these snippets of code really that they call machine readable signals. And basically what that does is that the algorithms of Google, Facebook, Twitter, and, and Microsoft's Bing, you know, these, these big tech, um, tech websites, um, they basically prioritize, uh, your content over other content. So for example, a lot of independent media pages, including the one I write for have noticed that after the 2016 election, we had been censored very heavily by Facebook and by Google and by Twitter. 
But if you manage to get one of these snippets of, of, of code access to them and you get to embed it in the site of your page, it's sort of like a workaround for those same algorithms. So basically these super repressive algorithms totally throttle the spread of information of pages that aren't partners. But if you're partnered and chosen by them, you get basically what amounts to preferential treatment and you get your results ranked first and basically all the other independent media outlets that aren't trust project approved get bogged down. This is troubling when you look um, not just at the fact that, you know, the trust project is nominally formed of just, you know, mainstream media outlets, but the fact that it's um it's it's largely funded by Google and Facebook themselves. So it's basically this way of fighting fake news, but sort of like self-funding the solution to fake news, which is um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of criticisms of Google and Facebook and how, you know, they're basically go- you know, they are government contractors a lot of these Silicon Valley pages and basically, you know, they're they're deciding who is who are the uh who is real news and who is fake news. I mean, basically the trust project is a way of giving um that type of power to these increasingly powerful Silicon Valley behemoths who have increasing ties to the military industrial complex in the United States. And also, um, you know, the military industrial complex or intelligence communities of other countries, which is quite troubling. And one of the the main uh, oligarchs there is a guy that the site I write for um, has criticized a whole lot. And his name is Piero Midiar. He's um, the founder of eBay, but he's also known today as the uh, current owner of PayPal. And he also um, is, of course, known because he funds uh, The Intercept and some, you know, other uh, news outlets. So... Um, Piero Midiar, of course, has a lot of deep ties uh, to um, the U.S. intelligence community. He had a lot of ties to the Obama White House um, and is it ha- has consistently been up to a lot of um, no good, I would say. But basically, you know, basically um, it, it's giving these sort of tech o- oligarchs power to decide what is news and what is not. Um, and this is really troubling, too, when you consider that Piero Midiar recently teamed up with Bill Crystal and funded Bill Crystal's Alliance for Securing Democracy, which basically had this um, this Russian bot dashboard, it was called, uh, Hamilton 68, that was super untransparent. And basically anything that turned it on Twitter, the establishment didn't want to trend. It would be used to blame that on alleged Russian bots without proof, right? Um, so this is something that Piero Midiar was funding. He's also funding the Trust Project. <laughs> which which seems sort of contradictory, doesn't it? Um, so there's a lot to be worried about um, when it comes to the trust project. And I, I think the only really way to um, get around it is trying to find out what these snippets of code are and sort of guerrilla embed them <laughs> in, in independent media sites as sort of a workaround. <laughs> yeah, codes. Give me those codes. But I'm with you. This is very important, and it seems like a pretty transparent attack on alternative media. Let's circle the wagons, promote only the inner circle groups, and the rest will hopefully die off eventually because they can't reach the same audience without the support of the big five platforms. I mean, yes, that's definitely a concern, and I'm glad we could spend some time on it. I just wanted to make sure we talked about some of your other work because a lot of important things are happening out there. Even though the Jeffrey Epstein story is the most trendy and the most juicy, and there are a lot of journalists trying to cover the Epstein saga, and your work has definitely been catapulted to the front of the pack. And it's hard work to do because the trail runs dark in a lot of places, but why do you think your coverage of the Epstein scandal has been so popular uh, and such a standout? What have you picked up on that maybe others have missed? 
Well, what I think I did is I, I think I just took a different approach because I was personally curious about um, one thing in particular, which had to do with um, Alex Acosta saying that Jeffrey Epstein had ties to intelligence. When that came out, of course, I was just interested in um, I had planned to just write a, a report about the history of sexual blackmail operations um, conducted by the CIA or at least in the United States. And so, of course, that's how this whole series started, because uh, digging into that history, I found things I didn't expect to find, which basically uh, led me to this thread, I guess you could call it. And the more I pulled on it, the more it became apparent that uh, Jeffrey Epstein really is, you know, the latest iteration of an, an operation that has been going on for a very long time, actually going back to really the genesis of, of some of the U.S.'s uh, most well-known intelligence agencies, uh, specifically the CIA, um, of course, which would be around the 1940s, in that this really began with organized crime in the United States. And, of course, organized crime in World War II sort of forged this alliance uh, with U.S. intelligence. And even though that was supposed to end after the war, as so many of these other uh, unsavory alliances that have happened over U.S. history, even though they're supposed to end at a certain time, uh, they don't and they end up becoming indefinite. And this is one one such case. So I think the fact that I, I, I just may have been the first person to find this thread in particular, which, you know, I, um, the beginning of this, this network and this, this operation involved in sexual blackmail operations is, is the topic of part one of my series where I go into, into that a bit. And I basically trace this back to, um, the national crime syndicate, which was co-founded by Mayor Lansky of the Jewish mob and, and Charles Lucky Luciano of the Genovese crime family and how that syndicate in particular got, got in bed with intelligence, as I said, and, um, how a lot of their associates also became involved in this type of activity and how those same ties we see, uh, to, you know, today, um, in terms of looking at Jeffrey Epstein's um, connections, not just to intelligence, but some of his business associates who was funding him, things like that. Yes. The way you take it back is so intriguing. A big element to me is that you take it back to CIA gun and drug running and like the Iran-Contra era, and you say, look, they were doing that, but nobody was talking about the child trafficking going on in this mix, too. And that's definitely a third rail to all this. And maybe it's kind of coming out now. It's more known about now than it was then. But you can kind of take this Epstein thing right back to then. Right, for sure. Well, um, you know, the crazy thing about Iran-Contra is that, uh, like you mentioned, you know, this was basically when, I guess you could call it the business aspect of the CIA Um was basically uh, ha had expanded to include, um, you know, arms trafficking, drugs trafficking, and also sex trafficking. Um, and that, you know, a, as I mentioned earlier, with, with organized crime, a lot of those were quote unquote businesses that used to be run by organized crime. And basically, um, the CIA, by virtue of its, uh, you know, formal alliance with this national crime syndicate, basically became the organized crime branch of the U.S. government. And a lot of its activity that we see going on in Iran-Contra, um, you know, reflects that pretty clearly. And, and of course, it's worth pointing out, too, that Iran-Contra uh, was basically, you know, covered up and forgotten about um, a lot of the people that were charged for it with really light sentences ended up being pardoned. And so because of that lack of accountability, uh, even just looking at Iran-Contra alone has allowed not only that activity to continue, but I would argue um, ha would allow it to, has allowed it to expand and proliferate and, and fully explains why someone with, with well, uh, someone like Jeffrey Epstein was allowed to basically run a sexual blackmail operation involving rich and powerful people 
that exploited underage girls for so long. You know, the reason he was allowed to do this um, and able to do this for decades is because he clearly had some sort of um, some sort of, you know, state protection. And that's why we ended up seeing Alex Acosta being told um, when he was, you know, a federal prosecutor in Florida that he had to negotiate the sweetheart deal for Epstein back in 2007 because Epstein was tied to intelligence, even though he was facing, you know, charges then potentially for sex trafficking of minors. Of course, those charges uh, were filed against him this year when he was arrested in, in July. So so what happens during this period with Iran-Contra is that, you know, during the 1980s, a couple of these uh, sexual blackmail operations or, or uh, pedophile rings even came to light which had not really happened much in the past. And what we see, though, is about the ones that that did get some sort of press coverage, they ended up being connected. Specifically, uh, they were connected to this operation that I was referencing earlier that began with organized crime, when uh, organized crime and the CIA sort of joined together um, first in the late 40s. And then I should probably talk about that first ring for a second before getting into the um, the later iterations of that that came up around I- in Iran-Contra. Basically, the, the original ring that I, I traced sort of this network around Jeffrey Epstein back to was first started by a man named Louis Rosensteel, who was this uh, Mayor Lansky connected, very close to Mayor Lansky, businessman involved in the liquor industry. And he his company at the time was Shinley Liquors, and he ran a sexual blackmail operation involving underage boys out of his home. Later, this expanded during the anti-communist crusade and got some sort of um, government protection, apparently, at at some point, um, because it ended up involving a former director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who, of course, was well known for um, his uh, penchant for blackmail. And uh, it also involved Roy Cohn, who then was general counsel to Joseph McCarthy, and later, um, of course, became a mentor to people like President Donald Trump and uh, Roger Stone, and um, was very deeply connected himself uh, to the Reagan White House. So um, that first began in the 1950s during this period of, of the Red Scare and whatnot, and continued um, well into at least the early 1980s. I assume that when Roy Cohn uh, became really ill around 1984, 1985, he stopped really engaging in those type of activities, but I don't really know um, for sure. But Roy Cohn died in 1986. But anyway, um, some of these other rings that came up in Iran-Contra, one of the most um, well-known ones by people that sort of have looked into this sort of stuff is one that was run by this guy named Craig Spence. And Craig Spence was a really prominent lobbyist in Washington, mainly, um, I believe he was mainly connected with the Republican Party. And um, I couldn't track down exactly when he began his lobbying activities, but they were in full swing by 1982, because that's when the New York Times wrote um, an entire profile about Spence. Um, and a lot of the, the language used to describe Spence is very similar to what we see about Jeffrey Epstein. So Craig Spence was, uh, you know, he was uh, compared to Jay Gatsby from the Great Gatsby novel. Um, you know, this mysterious wealthy figure uh, comparison that was also made uh, in later years with Jeffrey Epstein. Craig Spence was said to have, you know, parties in a phone book that were basically a who's who of powerful people in the government, in, in media, in, in business. Um, things like that, that he uh, was sought out by people for his connections, arguably more than than what he actually knew about businesses and, and things like that, that he was sought out, you know, for his connections more than anything else. And that the main thing, though, is that uh, the New York Times piece notes that he um, was well known for throwing these these lavish parties that had a lot of notable people attending, including, you know, celebrities from Hollywood and also uh, senators and, and top military officials, things like that. And that he claimed to be a close friend 
to people like Richard Nixon, Nixon's former attorney general, John Mitchell, who actually Jeffrey Epstein later claimed to be personal friends with as well, and some other figures. But actually, it came out, um, I think it was in 1989 from the Washington Times, that Spence was actually, uh, had been running um, a, a homosexual prostitution ring involving underage boys, uh, and that his client, the, his quote-unquote clients of this ring included powerful people in government, powerful people in the military, powerful people in business, the financial world, and the media, among other industries, and that he had basically tried to entrap people into compromising sexual encounters with with these kids, um, and he had his house bugged with uh, equipment, w- recording equipment, he had like a two-way mirror, and for people that he couldn't entrap into these um, sexual activities, he would try and, uh, you know, entrap them with, with cocaine and, and some illegal, other illegal drugs. So basically, he was involved in acquiring blackmail, and uh, it it appears that he also had um, ties to intelligence and may have been doing this on behalf of the CIA because Spence actually claimed that he worked for the CIA to people that attended his parties. Uh, He was always he he told uh, several people that that knew him well that he was afraid the CIA CIA might double cross him and kill him and make it look like a suicide. And actually, that is what happened to Spence. He was found uh, dead in the Boston Ritz-Carlton Hotel, and his death was quickly ruled a suicide, not unlike some of the circumstances surrounding Jeffrey Epstein's death. Um, and actually, Spence appears to have been involved to some extent in the drug running activities of the 1980s, because he claimed that the cocaine that he had at his parties, he had acquired it by doing uh, smuggling cocaine in the, into the U.S. for from El Salvador, and that he did that in connection with people from the U.S. military. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, he claimed to be working with the CIA. And probably the most convincing evidence about Spence's ties two powerful politicians is the fact that he actually took some of these underage boys uh, to the White House on midnight tours of the White House. And Spence uh, claimed that the person who helped him arrange this was actually uh, George uh, Bush's senior's national security advisor, Donald Gregg, who um, had worked from the CIA, I believe, from 1951 to 1982 and uh, had worked directly under William Casey who was the uh, director of the CIA under Reagan. And of course, William Casey was one of the people that attended um, Spence's, uh, you know, blackmail parties where these underage boys were present. But also Roy Cohn was there. And I just mentioned Roy Cohn was involved in one of these activities earlier. And actually one of the people that Craig Spence claimed to be closest to um, before his fall from grace was Roy Cohn. And he actually hosted uh, birthday parties for Roy Cohn at um, his personal home. And they were apparently really close. So given the overlap in activities there, I would argue that that there is likely some sort of um, connection uh, between the two. And of course, um, we know that Craig Spence, the investigation of his sex ring later led to the discovery of um, what is arguably the most well-known pedophile ring of the period, which is, um, you know, the one that was run by Larry King out of Omaha, Nebraska, um, and is often just referred to as the Franklin Ring or the Franklin Scandal, because basically by looking at Spence's finances, and um, they came across Larry King's name. Of course, I'm not talking about Larry King, the journalist. This is some other guy uh, for people who may be confused. Um, but basically, Larry King uh, was this... Um, Republican, uh, I guess you could say activist or, or lobbyist really, who was running this credit union that was basically a sham credit union. Um, and was basically a front for this, uh, this child sex abuse ring. And actually children were killed as a part of it. It, it really disturbing stuff. But basically King had a lot of connections to, Iran-Contra type things and also the Reagan administration. There were also ties to the CIA. A lot of people have 
reported on the Franklin scandal, and I'm not claiming to be an expert here, but I did, uh, you know, going through a lot of the research that other people have done in the Franklin scandal, I mean, and, and the fact that I ran Contra, um, you know, that network of intelligence and, and all these other things that, that developed during this time. It's quite compelling that, you know, we can see sort of a, a direct line from this from the first ring I talk about to here, and then from these Iran-Contra rings later to Jeffrey Epstein. But anyway, staying on, on King for a second, um, Larry King uh, co-founded, as an example, he, co- he co-founded this group with this guy named David Carmen that was called Citizens for America, and it actually um, sponsored speaking trips for Oliver North, who was like one of the main people involved in Iran-Contra, and also uh, leaders for the Contra paramilitary members in Nicaragua. And David Carmen, who Larry King co-founded this with, uh, he ran a public relations firm with the former head of covert operations at the CIA, Max Hugel. And David Carmen's father, who was also a part of this PR firm, was the head of the General Services Administration under Reagan and later became an ambassador under Ronald Reagan as well. So he was definitely connected uh, to this stuff going on. And also the credit union that was a front for this company also did business with a, another um, rather suspect savings and loan company that uh, was actually uh, partially run by Neil Bush, who was uh, the brother of George H.W. Bush and the son of George Bush Sr., so again, a lot of uh, disturbing connections there as well. But um, so how does Jeffrey Epstein fit into this, right? I guess that's probably what a lot of your listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's deep, but yes, that's probably on the minds of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess this would be a good point then to go back into uh, Jeffrey Epstein's past. And then you can see uh, it's pretty easy to see there how he ties in with this Iran-Contra network um, and how that, that changes moving forward. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but on the subject of Jeffrey Epstein's past. I just wanted to ask you about this because the last time we covered Epstein in depth, I definitely emphasized this story about how uh, William Barr's father hired him at the Dalton School and how weird that was. And I had a bunch of people write me and they were saying, you know, this is not true, that Donald Barr actually quit before he hired Epstein. And I was a little upset. I don't want to be throwing out information that's incorrect, but now I'm finding so many different opinions. And I just wanted to know if we're going to talk about Epstein's background, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that episode at the Dalton School and this idea of was he or wasn't he hired by Donald Barr, because you've looked into this quite deeply. Right. So um, it's understandable why these conflicting opinions about Donald Barr and his role with Jeffrey Epstein exist. And that, and this can all pretty much be traced back to a, a report in the Daily Beast um, that said that Donald Barr had left, uh, was no longer headmaster at the Dalton School by the time that Jeffrey Epstein had been hired um, and thus was not involved in the hiring of Jeffrey Epstein. We know that Donald Barr left the Dalton School um, as headmaster at the end of June uh, 1974 and that Epstein began the following semester um, as a math teacher, um, I believe in September of 1974. So that is why people are saying that he was not involved in the hiring of Epstein. And that comes goes back to this Daily Beast report that I just mentioned. But actually, a week after it was published and had been widely circulated and used to debunk this claim, um, the Daily Beast actually updated this report. So anyone that that is confused here, I would just, you know, urge you to go back and look at the original Daily Beast report because it has been updated uh, to 
no longer claim that Donald Barr did not hire Jeffrey Epstein. And this is because um, they got in touch with the person that actually that was the interim headmaster after Donald Barr left the school. And he claimed that um, by the time he had started, Jeffrey Epstein had already been hired. He had no recollection of hiring Jeffrey Epstein. And he, as well as other people that were later interviewed by the Daily Beast, said that hiring decisions were made in the spring, which would mean that when hiring decisions were made in the spring, Donald Barr was still headmaster. Right. And also um, other people, not just the interim headmaster, but other people um, that worked at the school said that Donald Barr was well known for hiring, quote unquote, unconventional teachers. Um, and this means, uh, you know, basically the Donald Barr's reasoning was said to have been that he felt that, you know, people that didn't have the traditional background that one would expect teachers to have at this elite private school would enrich the lives and the academic experience of the students. And of course, Epstein um, fits into that category because when he was hired to work at the school, he didn't have a college degree. Um, he hadn't finished his his studies at university. So um, he was considered to be an unconventional hire. And also the New York Times did, a, I think, a whole article about his unconventional behavior while at the Dalton School. So let's talk about Donald Barr for a second, because the, the timing, you know, based on what I just described, seems to indicate, um, of course, Donald Barr can't confirm or deny what went on because he's dead. Right. <laughs> and this was a really long time ago. You know, this was in the early 70s. So, it, you know, um, I, I, it seems unlikely at this point that more information will come out than what I've already mentioned. But we do know that Donald Barr used to work for the forerunner to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, which, of course, is the intelligence agency that first created this formal alliance with this organized crime syndicate that I mentioned earlier. And actually, at the time, in 1974, when, when Epstein was hired and when Donald Barr was still headmaster, William Barr, his son, who's the current attorney general, uh, was working for the CIA. So um, that, that point gets overlooked a little bit because there was still, uh, at that point in time that Epstein was hired, Donald Barr had family connections, direct family connections to the CIA, even though he had left the OSS a few decades before, right? Uh, something else that's really weird, too, um, that, that I mentioned in my report and some other people have picked up on as well, is that um, a year before he hired Epstein, Donald Barr had an interest in science fiction, and he wrote a science fiction novel called Space Relations that is about human trafficking and sexual slavery, which is quite interesting given what we know that uh, what Epstein was later up to, and also uh, what the CIA was actually involved in during the 1970s when Epstein was hired, actually, because um, one of the things that William Barr was actually involved in during this period of time that Epstein was at the Dalton School was stonewalling the church committee because he was the liaison to Congress uh, between the CIA and Congress during the church committee investigation. And one of the things that he fought tooth and nail to keep coming out to the public was the CIA's use of sexual blackmail operations targeting foreign diplomats. So that's another um, odd connection there, right? So I can understand why people are confused about the Donald Barr thing, um, because generally when a re new report comes out, a lot of people um, know the original report, but if it's corrected or updated, they don't necessarily know that, right? So anyone um, that hasn't heard or read the information I'm talking about, please go back to that um, Daily Beast article and, and read what they put out there. Because, you know, if you're going to, to buy uh, or if you're going to, you know, promote the original claim made by this Daily Beast article, it would make sense to read the update and the, and the correction they issued. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thanks for pointing that out because it's just a particularly important update for this audience given the way Epstein was covered in a previous show. And these things do get complicated. But as you note, it's not the only reason to be suspect, to be skeptical about Donald Barr. I mean, the whole Donald Barr being 
in this shadowy network doesn't hinge on the fact that he hired Epstein. He's got this strange book and he's got these other connections to intelligence. Right. And and let's also remember, too, that I, I think uh, one of the reasons that, you know, there's been so much pushback against this point in particular is the fact that William Barr has not recused himself from the Jeffrey Epstein investigation. And people were using that point to call on him to recuse himself. Right. But even if, you know, if he, even if it wasn't for that, William Barr, if he actually cared, would recuse himself um, just by virtue of the fact that before becoming attorney general this time, he worked at the law firm where uh, Epstein's defense attorneys came from when the sweetheart deal was negotiated in 2007. And if you go even farther back than then when he was attorney general the first time, he was involved in the cover up of Iran-Contra and justified the legality of the pardons for all these Iran-Contra figures. And of course, as as we just talked about, right, Iran-Contra uh, had a lot of involvement in these types of activities. So, um, you know, that's quite, um, you know, he's basically a cover-up master. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, when uh, with the church committee, he was trying to keep information from the public regarding sexual blackmail operations. So he really does not seem to be the right person to be uh, in charge of basically overseeing these these two separate uh, Department of Justice investigations into, into what uh, happened to Epstein when he was allegedly found dead in his cell. <laughs> right, right. And not to jump all over the place, but I also heard another detail from one of your previous interviews that it seems like Maybe Barr had made a promise to Clinton or suggest to Clinton that if he could keep the stuff going on in Mena, Arkansas, under wraps, that he might be in line for the presidency. Yeah, well, that's coming from a former CIA agent that worked directly all, uh, under Oliver North and was involved in the stuff going on in Mena, Arkansas, during Iran-Contra. Uh, but we can get to that in a bit uh, when we get to the Clintons. <laughs> because I really quickly, I wanted to go through uh, Jeffrey Epstein's history, and we can, uh, after that, just go into the um, how the Clintons tie into Iran-Contra stuff as well. But since we're talking about uh, the Dalton School, right, um, Jeffrey Epstein leaves the Dalton School under rather mysterious circumstances. There's there's conflicting accounts of why he was let go, but he was let go. He didn't leave of his own accord, and he ended up leaving. And, of course, he gets another uh, quite fortuitous, uh, you know, uh, hiring uh, luck with being hired by uh, the elite in investment bank, Bear Stearns, even though he has no trading experience and no college degree and is just some math teacher, right? And he's hired directly by the head of Bear Stearns himself, Alan Greenberg. And Alan Greenberg claimed that the reason he hired Epstein is because Epstein was so nice to his kids who he tutored. But that seems kind of like an odd reason to hire someone uh, to basically trade money for your clients at your fancy investment bank, even though they have no trading experience. Right. <laughs> so basically, Epstein uh, becomes a partner pretty quickly in, in Bear Stearns. And he again ends up leaving under a cloud of secrecy. And it's not there's, again, conflicting reasons given from different people why he left. But basically, the, the Epstein's claim that he had some sort of affair with a secretary doesn't really pass the smell test because the the money, uh, he, he got like fined or something. We, we know that for a fact, but it was like a very small fine to leave such a high paying job and being a partner at Bear Stearns. It, it just didn't really um, seem like the real reason he left. And, and Vicki Ward, who's done a lot of um, reporting in the past on Jeffrey Epstein, she points to an investigation that was opened by the Security and Exchange Commission that was opened the day before Epstein left Bear Stearns. And um, apparently from her research, it seemed like Epstein left in connection with that investigation. And what's interesting is that the allegation 
or rather the reason that investigation was opened was because Epstein was accused or, or rather Bear Stearns was accused of uh, insider trading, um, specifically um, having received information um, from Edgar Bronfman, then owner of Seagram's, about a tender offer that Seagram's was offering on some on some mineral corporation or a mining company. And so Epstein um, was apparently um, involved in sort of that insider trading aspect of Bear Stearns and appeared to have left um, in relation to that um, because the the interviews, the transcripts of the interviews that Epstein gave to the SEC after he'd already left Bear Stearns, um, the people at the SEC were really skeptical of his answers and there was some conflicting evidence. That's interesting because Bronfman, Edgar Bronfman, is one of the members of the Mega Group, which, of course, um, was co-founded by Charles Bronfman, Edgar's brother, and Leslie Wexner. And, of course, we know that Leslie Wexner was one of the uh, main financial backers um, of Epstein. I say financial backer because even though he's often described as a client of Epstein, there's a lot of evidence that Epstein was not actually wealthy and that his wealth came from somewhere else and his only named client, i.e. source of money through this uh, billionaire consulting firm, uh, was Leslie Wexner. Sorry, I just wanted to point out that uh, Les Wexner, I mean, he's the founder and CEO of L Brands, which owns a lot of mall stores, limited... Tons of mall stores, yeah. (laughs) Victoria's Secret, Bath and Body Works, Express, Lane Bryant, Abercrombie and Fitch. And that's just an interesting detail that people might want to, you know, think about that in your head and how... Trafficking relates to global shipping and logistics operations that, you know, they have. We'll get into that. We'll get into that in a second because <laughs> that gets pretty that gets pretty crazy with uh, how Wexner and Epstein were handling logistics for the limited in the 90s. That gets really nuts. So um, anyway, he leaves Bear Stearns, right? And in, in connection with the Bronfman's mega group, Wexner, just keep that in your brain for a little bit. Yeah. So after that, this is where Jeffrey Epstein's history gets super weird. And even um, a lot of people in mainstream media have, have basically avoided this period of Epstein's life, which I think is really telling. But basically, um, during this period of time, Epstein described what he was doing to friends uh, and, and other sources and sources uh, who, you know, were used by other journalists reporting on Epstein, like Vicky Ward and some others say that he, you know, was this financial bounty hunter is the term that's most often used to describe what he was doing. He basically claimed that he was, he would hunt down money for powerful people and governments, and he would also hide money for those same powerful people and governments. Well, that to me sounds sort of like tax evasion, offshore tax shelters. We know that Epstein was involved with that even, uh, you know, well into the 2000s. It also seems to indicate that he was involved in some sort of money laundering activity. But either way, he was involved in the world of shadow finance, uh, case in point. One of the few clients, named clients of Epstein during this period of time, which appears to have continued from when he left Bear Stearns in 1981 to 1985, when he, or at least ni- between 1985 and 1987, depending on, on what you, uh, uh, on, on the date that he gets uh, most closely asso- uh, associated with Leslie Wexner, um, he was involved in this world of shadow finance and his only uh, known client during this period of time was Adnan Khashoggi. And of course, Adnan Khashoggi, people might know who he is uh, more recently because he is the uncle of Jamal Khashoggi, who was the guy that was, uh, you know, dismembered in the in the embassy in Istanbul, the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. And, and that was a big, uh, got a lot of media coverage, right? Um, but actually, Adnan Khashoggi, he was a main, one of the main arms dealers involved in Iran-Contra. He was an asset, not just for U.S. intelligence, but also Saudi intelligence and the Mossad. 
and he'd been uh, on the payroll of the of the Mossad uh, several years before 1981. But by 1981, he was definitely on it. And 1981 was also the year that he began doing arms deals for Iran-Contra. And he continued that to until, I believe, 1985 or 1986. There were several other arms dealers involved in Iran-Contra besides Ednan Khashoggi. But what was interesting about Khashoggi is that he was considered the quote-unquote banker of the arms dealers because he was the one that would move the money around. He would do the financial aspect of the arms deals. Um, so why would he hire someone like Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> which I think is um, something we might want to ask ourselves here. Um, it's also worth pointing out, too, that um, we know that a lot of the transactions that Khashoggi was doing in relation to this sort of activity during this period of time was through the Bank of uh, Credit and Commerce International, or BCCI, which, of course, is the notorious CIA-linked bank. And it's also worth pointing out, too, that Bear Stearns, where Epstein had worked prior to working for Khashoggi, was a broker to BCCI. So not only do we have Khashoggi connected to BCCI, we have Khashoggi connected to Jeffrey Epstein, and we have uh, Jeffrey Epstein connected to Bear Stearns, who's also connected to BCCI. So that, to me, suggests that Epstein, in his capacity as shadow finance operative for Khashoggi, was likely involved to some extent with BCCI as well. And some uh, something really crazy about BCCI that doesn't get as much coverage as its other activities because, of course, BCCI is most well known for money laundering, uh, you know, drug and arms trafficking, things like that. But it was also involved in sex trafficking to an extent as well, which does not get as much coverage. And actually, um, people that work for BCCI in the United Arab Emirates, they would basically bribe top UAE officials by basically selling them prepubescent girls for sex. So BCCI was into that sort of activity. So again, you know, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, one of the undercovered aspect of, of these types of, I would call them criminal rackets that are often done in connection with intelligence, um, you know, arms and, and drugs trafficking definitely happen and they get the most coverage, but sex trafficking is definitely something that happens even if it passes under the radar. This is where we see, you know, Epstein get involved, clearly involved with someone who's uh, tied into intelligence. It's also worth pointing out, too, that Alan Greenberg, who had hired Epstein at Bear Stearns, was also a very close friend and associate of Roy Cohn, who we were talking about a little bit earlier. So that's another um, interesting tie-in there as well. So skipping ahead a little bit, um, after he stops and leaves this world of shadow finance, uh, it's when he teams up with Leslie Wexner. He eventually becomes Leslie Wexner's, um, he basically gets power of attorney for Leslie Wexner and he can hire and fire people for, for Wexner. Um, he basically starts managing logistics for Wexner's company, L Brands, right? And L Brands or, or the limited, um, I forget exactly when the company changed its name. It used to be, it, it was the limit and then it was L Brands or something like that. But anyway, this is Wexner's company. That's all these mall brands, <laughs> all these, all these stores in, in the mall. Beginning in 1994, um, Epstein, who's managing logistics for Wexner, obviously with Wexner's knowledge, they start to negotiate the relocation of a company called Southern Air Transport that's based in Miami, Florida to Columbus, Ohio. The reason they want this airline to relocate is because they want them to run cargo for the limited. They want it to bring, presumably, textiles from Hong Kong to Columbus and basically uh, be the airline that runs this route for Wexner companies. The negotiations don't just involve the limited and Southern Air Transport. They involve Ohio's government as well, which apparently under pressure from Wexner, who is one of the richest people in the entire state, basically ends up convincing Ohio's government to prepare uh, this very attractive incentive package to Southern Air Transport to get them to relocate. And actually, once they relocate in 1995 to Columbus, after all, 
the top executives at Southern Air Transport cited that incentive package, a large portion of which uh, was bankrolled by Ohio taxpayers, as the reason for the relocation. What's interesting here as well is that some of the key players besides Wexner and Epstein in getting that relocation to happen are Richard Secord and Alan Fears, both of whom were very, very much involved with Iran-Contra. Actually, Alan Fears was one of the guys uh, that was charged in connection with the Iran-Contra scandal. I believe he was in charge of um, Central America operations for the CIA during Iran-Contra. So that's crazy, especially when you take into consideration that at this period of time, Southern Air Transport was the known CIA front company for Iran-Contra, you know, the airline that was used for Iran-Contra operations and was actually the airline uh, used by Barry Seal to take stuff from Central America, from, from the Contras, to MENA in Arkansas, the MENA airport, and back again. You know, out of all of the airlines in the, in the United States during this period, Epstein and Wexner seek out the only one that is known, publicly known, to be a CIA cutout, basically. That's really nuts. And also we know, too, um, that at some point in the 1990s, we- uh, Epstein claimed that he previously worked for the CIA, We don't know exactly when he was claiming he worked for the CIA, whether it was in the 80s when he was involved with Khashoggi or whether it was uh, in connection with him and Southern Air Transport. But we know he was making those claims prior to the year 2001 when uh, there was a report citing Epstein having made these claims published in London's uh, Evening Standard that talked about, um, you know, had different sources saying that Epstein had made this claim during uh, this period of time. Wow. You do have such a grip on this stuff. And there are so many different concentric rings of criminals and cabals. Yeah, and it's nuts. <laughs> it is. It is so nuts. And I just really appreciate the work you've done. This has been really awesome. I think you have a real knack for this kind of work. And I hope people follow what you're doing after this. And maybe we should give them the links. Of course, mintpressnews.com. But is there anything else to give the people? Social media platforms you're most active on? I mean, you've done a great couple of podcasts, too. Sure. Um, well, um, the podcast for Mint Press News, which is the Mint cast, it's currently on hiatus. So I'll let people know on social media. And of course, Mint Press's pages on social media will let people know when that is functioning again. I have been in Facebook jail since like April. They don't let me post any links on my author page. So I just kind of gave up on Facebook. So I mostly use Twitter. Uh, you can follow me uh, at underscore Whitney Webb on there. And because I'm in Facebook jail, that's the platform I am most active on. Mm, right on. Well, great. It was a real treat to have you here. I'm glad we could highlight just a fantastic journalist like yourself. Keep doing what you do. There's definitely more to talk about. Hopefully we can do it again in the future, but stay uh, stay vigilant and be careful out there. Thanks. Sounds good to me. I'd love to be back on. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. Hell of a show. Hell of a show. Really happy to get this one out. And what? You thought we were only going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein once? Come on, don't be silly. Of course not. But big thanks to Whitney Webb for her excellent research and really great recall. I know a lot of people were sending me her articles, and I think even Gordon posted one. And I thought, yeah, we might retread a little ground here, but we have enough new threads that it's going to be well worth it. So I really appreciate her time. I know she was running on fumes because so many people have been trying to interview her. It's not as easy for THC to just push our way to the front of that line as it was six years ago. Number of podcasts probably doubles every year. 
And we know the higher side chats is good, but how is someone in her position supposed to know? But whatever, we did it. And it is an instant classic as far as I'm concerned. You could probably tell as we got to the 30, 45 minute mark that I was really trying to push us through the saga to get to some of the Clinton threads because our show with Recluse was so heavy on the Trump, Barr, Cone threads. And I really wanted to get to the other side of things. But we all know about Bill Clinton and the Mena, Arkansas airport smuggling. Although I've never heard anybody incorporate this third rail of human trafficking into that context that I can remember. So that was important and educational. I was really intrigued by the Leslie Wexner thread with Southern Air Transport. And here's a weird bit of Greg Carlwood history for you, and it probably means nothing. But one of the many stores that Les Wexner owns is Express. And when I moved from St. Louis to Columbia, Missouri, where the college is, my friend's mom had to ask around her corporate retail network to find a store in Columbia that would hire me because I had no resume or experience and I just wanted to live in the college town with my friends without actually going to college because I had just dropped out. So she worked her magic and found me a job as the stockroom manager at Express because Express was not going to put me on the floor, especially then because I wasn't Express appropriate. I was actually probably pretty anti-Express, but beggars can't be choosers, right? Well, as the stockroom manager, I would handle the shipments. And I remember expecting a big, nice semi-truck to pull up to the loading dock, and it would be this big, official, professional thing. But when I actually got shipments, it was way more casual than I thought. It was three guys in a regular pickup truck who didn't speak English tossing me boxes out of the back. And I always thought that was kind of strange. It's not easy to find people who don't speak English in the middle of Missouri first off, but it seemed quite amateur, you know? I'd see these FedEx and UPS guys bringing in the carts and delivering to all the other stores, but I'm this stressed out 19-year-old behind the building shouting, that's for Express, right? Okay, a key, a key. Here? See, see. Very little documentation for the process. And I would think, so did we get every box we were supposed to get? I have no idea. Not a big deal. Probably not even relevant. It was just, I'm guessing, some cheap subcontractor. But it was the oddest shipping situation in the Columbia Mall. And I was in charge of it. And the owner of the company is apparently mixed up in some pretty sketchy shipping-related scandals. But anyway, I am glad that we got to talk about a lot more than just the Epstein case, though. I've made a few comments over the last couple of months or so about how I wanted to get our focus to be a bit more diverse or international in scope. And if you check out the interviews Whitney's been doing, at least the ones that I've heard, it's 100% Epstein, and I get it. That's trendy and obviously extremely interesting. But I saw the other articles that she's written, and I just thought, wow, these are really important too, and more unique. So let's start there. 
And I actually think we could do a whole show on this economic hitman stuff going on in the realm of controlling the world's food supply and forcing them to convert to GMO or, <laughs> or else overthrowing their government. Obviously, it's an old tactic, the government working on behalf of corporations, getting them in to plunder resources and take over local distribution, like the old Jaquita banana scandal, right? But this is a lot worse because they're trying to remove organic alternatives from the whole planet, it seems. Attacking countries that start seed banks? I mean, what the hell is going on here? We talked about it with Joseph Farrell last time, I believe in the Plus Show. And we got to talk about it today at the beginning. And I think it's a big enough issue to warrant more shows. Crazy stuff. But I'm feeling good. Just really happy with where the new site is now. That the kinks are all worked out. I'm really proud of the show offerings in August and September. And just really psyched about the future. It is a great time to sign up for Plus. The new website is going to treat you right. And we got a great lineup coming. In this extended interview with Whitney, we talked about crossing the line between Democrat and Republican, as well as CIA, Mossad, MI6. When you say a guy works for intelligence, can you really peg him to just one of these organizations? I don't think so. And we really hit the Lexner-Epstein connections hard and deep in that second hour. Talked about Lynn Forrester de Rothschild's surprising interest in Jeffrey Epstein. The state of the investigation now that Epstein has died. Whitney's thoughts on the New Mexico ranch and Epstein's master race plan. We also got into the controversial but possible prospect that Epstein is still alive. That he was extracted rather than murdered. Questions about if the international investigations might yield better results than the ones carried out in the United States, and also how connected to the blackmail network Trump might be, and has the Trump administration really done anything differently politically, at least anything of conspiratorial significance? Lots of stuff that I think is worth your time, but you be the judge. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com. I guess the only real higher side news is that the joint session this month is going to be on the 25th, 7 p.m. Pacific, and I will be in Portland this week hanging with Gordon White and Austin Kopic. I think there are three different meetups, and I should be at all three. What do I got to do? So let's burn a few down, right? Really psyched to get a little vacation, hang with some colleagues, hang with some listeners potentially, and just get away from the computer screen, because August was rough. I think we all know August was rough for me. Can't talk about it forever, but <laughs> still fresh. The wounds are still fresh. But all right, life's not so bad. I'm going to get out of here. Maybe I'll see you in Portland, people. Thanks again to Whitney Webb. Let her know THC is the place that she should be checking in with once in a while, because there are plenty of great shows that I think we could do. And I'll catch you next time. Your move, nefarious multinational trafficking operators, blackmail network bastards, and capstone cabals who have built their houses on nothing but sand. Your fucking move. You know the plan has always been to hack your brain. MK just trying to drive you insane. They'll explode your heart if they think that's what it takes. 
You think I'm answering the phone? Well, I ain't. You gotta keep the curtains drawn, 'cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home. Well, you're not. You should tape the mail slot. And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's 'cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan. It's what the world's become. They want a pat down and a swap. Don't you see what's going on? Well, now you know. You're better keeping on your own 'cause you can see the masters lie too much. Oh, baby, you can only trust yourself. And if you think the system's out of touch, it isn't you. Can only trust yourself. I hope you know the elite aren't your friends. They'll suck out everything from you in the end. And if for some reason you think I might be wrong, I wonder where you got that opinion from. You gotta keep the curtains drawn, 'cause you don't want anyone thinking you're at home. Well, you're not. You should tape the mail slot. And baby, if I seem withdrawn, let me say it's 'cause I just don't wanna go and get whacked. Maybe you should know that the trauma affects you like it does everyone. It's just the game plan. It's what the world's become. Trust yourself. 